Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. Welcome, everyone. The Parsha this week is called Devarim, which is the Hebrew word for words. It's the first portion in the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of the Torah, which in Hebrew is called the book of Devarim, or the book of words, because it consists of Moses' last words to the people, his final speeches before the people cross over into the Promised Land after 40 years of wandering and before he dies. Our guest today to talk about all this is Rabbi Benjamin Shalva. Ben is a really interesting guy, a rabbi and an author and a musician and a practitioner of yoga and meditation and mindfulness. As always, for the first few minutes, we'll talk about the weekly Torah portion. And then if you'd like, stick around to hear the rest of what Rabbi Shalva and I talk about. All right, Rabbi Benjamin Shalva, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you, Rabbi Streifer. Good to be here. It's it's a pleasure. And we're old friends, so this is nice catching up in this way. So I'm allowed to call you Micah. What do you think? I'm good with it, as long as I can call you Ben. <laughs> That's good. Ben is great. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're a freelance rabbi these days in the Baltimore, D.C. area, which means you do a lot of different rabbinic-type things. I was looking over your website before. And you lead services, you you lead yoga and music, and you're an author. So I want to talk to you about all of that after we talk about the Parsha, if that's okay with you. Sounds great. Yeah. But let's talk about Devarim. You said you wanted to talk about the idea of Moses ending the Torah with a book. Yeah. I mean, I I love the notion that you would have a book within a book. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's obviously many great examples in literature. I'm thinking of one of my, I, 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 I'm not trying to equate <laughs> the, the, the Torah with this, but, you know, I'm thinking of that great book, The NeverEnding Story, that, mm-hmm. that they turned into a movie. And, you know, it's all about a, a boy who finds a book and then he gets, you know, he kind of, he becomes part of the book and it's a book within a book. And that's really what I think of as Devarim. I mean, I, I, I do sort of see the first four books of the Torah as being uh, essentially a narrative and it's got legal sections and things like that. And then all of a sudden you hit this last book of the Torah, Deuteronomy, Devarim, and, and it suddenly feels like, you know, Moses has decided to sit down and in some ways he's reflecting on his life and hoping that those reflections and whatever he sort of stirs up by those reflections will somehow uh, inspire and uh, warn and and um, encourage and admonish his people. Um, and then it's all within this other context too of knowing that he's not going to be with them when they cross into the promised land. If, if you've ever stood on the border of one place about to cross to the next or stood on the border of one place knowing you can't cross, but you're sending someone out there, you know, that's that's also to me a very poignant emotional setting. Right. Moses is, these are the words, I think, of someone who knows that there's more behind him than ahead of him. You know, Moses knows he's about to die. 
He has a lot to look back on. And he also knows, as you point out, that he's about to send the people across the river without him. So I wonder if he's worried at this moment about how they're going to be without him. I I think there's a lot of anxiety, but I think it's a kind of anxiety that is, um, is very creative, you know, like it's the kind of anxiety that a parent or a teacher would feel at that kind of moment that you're describing, like of, of, of the birth of their child or of their, of, of their student into this next stage. And so I really see it as a kind of creative, exciting kind of anxiety. The first book that I, I wrote and when I kind of decided I wanted to go into writing was uh, a spiritual memoir. And I mean, I wrote it in my I wrote it in my 30s, my late 30s. So I didn't have the sense, I mean, please God, I didn't have the sense that I was nearing the end of my life, but I did have the sense that a chapter was closing. And there was this sense almost of, I want to get these words out before this door closes and before I'm into a new chapter of something else and the memories fade and fade and fade. So I, I do think that there is a sense of that that pressure. This is almost like a conclusion then. What he does is go back over what's been happening right. for the last 40 years. We went here and we went there and this happened in this place and here's where we are now. And so I can see how he really is looking to, I think to recount those events and also to draw meaning from them, both for himself and for the people, knowing that the people who are about to cross over the river are not the same people who went through a lot of that. They are their children. Yeah, that's a wonderful point, right? So if he's restating, let's say the, the Ten Commandments, he's doing it for essentially a new audience or at least a group that would, would hardly remember it, if at all, you know? And there's a lot made in the medieval, in, in Talmudic and medieval commentary where the rabbis will spend a good amount of time comp comparing and contrasting what shows up in the book of Deuteronomy with what shows up in the first four books of the Torah and, and deriving teachings based on the comparing and contrasting the language in the two, in, in the two sections. So, you know, for example, how does Moses in Deuteronomy talk about Shabbat versus how it's mentioned in the book of Exodus or something like that? I, I sort of want to say this with, with all, you know, with all due respect to our great sages that I think, I think a lot of times that, that they derive wonderful and, so, and in some ways I would say clever teachings based on the comparing and contrasting. But in some ways, I feel like it kind of misses, I think, one of the, the, the key aspects here, which is that everything in Deuteronomy, it, or almost everything, is kind of through the mind and through the mouth of Moses. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we are such a people that has been so careful not to, like, elevate one person over another. You know, we kind of have the, like you know, as a people, we're like, okay, we're not claiming anyone as a Messiah or a son of God. So we don't want to, we're going to de-emphasize Moses a lot of the time in our tradition. But the fact is Deuteronomy is Moses's book. And so I think that like, if you look at the 10 commandments in Deuteronomy and you look at them in the book of Exodus and you notice differences, for me, it's not about how can we derive two sets of teachings from these two sets of commandments. For me, it's what do the commandments look like in their kind of initial experience? And what are they told? What do they look like when they're told almost through human eyes, through this prophet and hmm. through this man at the end of his life? And through, through the lens of, in some ways, of another generation, even though Moses is right. at the end of his life, what you really have here is the first retelling of the Torah. In fact, one of the Hebrew names for the book of Deuteronomy is Mishneh HaTorah. Maimonides right. then grabbed that name for his book, but... 
before it was Maimonides' book, it was Deuteronomy. And Mishneha Torah means the second telling of Torah. I think one of the really central ideas in Judaism is that you're supposed to retell and reinterpret Torah in every generation. They say, turn the Torah around and around because everything is in it. So we actually see that. I never thought about it this way until you said this, but we actually see Moses doing just that. Moses is actually retelling Torah in the Torah. So the Torah tells us from the very beginning of Judaism that it is meant to be interpreted, that it might not look the same in one generation as it looked a generation later. Yeah, I love that. I love that teaching. The medium is showing us that we're supposed to be turning this again and again and interpreting it. But I think it's also saying that this is meant to be seen through human eyes. We're not supposed to be looking at the Torah and getting some kind of absolute truth that's uh, immaculate and unequivocal. We're supposed to be working this with our own imperfect vision, you know? And one of the things you'll see when you look at the book, book of Deuteronomy is that Moses doesn't always remember things quite as they happened, you know? Right. Like his account of the spies, for instance, is... Um, well, it doesn't sound like it does in the book of Numbers. And you're going, wait a second. I don't I don't remember you saying that. Did that happen? You know, and he, he's sometimes making himself look a little better than he did. the Right. First time around. Exactly. And so for me, that's such a it's such a relief and it's such a very human thing. There's this research that's been done in neuroscience. And I apologize that I don't you know, have have more of the kind of data and details of this research. But I know that one of the things they've proven in neuroscience is that every time you recall a memory, you slightly change the memory in your mind. So it's not like you're, you're like looking at a picture in an album and, oh, you turn back to that picture every once in a while. I'm going to open the album and look at the picture again. That actually every time you open the album, the act of opening the album, the memory and looking at it slightly changes the picture so that by the time you've revisited a memory, let's just say, I don't know, a hundred times in your mind, the memory is actually not what happened. It's it, it's close, I'm sure. For most of us, it's close. But the, the Torah seems to also be saying here that that's fine. Because what we're not trying to do is we're not trying to kind of nail down fact, or even frankly, concretize dogma beyond any kind of question. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to immerse ourselves in truth, which like you said, like from generation to generation, it's going to change. There's a kind of humility that can develop from that, where we can grapple with a book, with a holy text, and understand that that the very project is flawed and fallible and that that's fine. You know, that's totally okay. And it's us. still holy then. It's still holy, right. In the Jewish world, we often will see it as, well, that must be the more true or the more fundamental interpretation um, let's say like, we, we, we'll look at like, you know, a, an ultra Orthodox community and say they are being more scrupulous and more adhere more zealously to the original words. But again, I think when you actually look at what's going on, it's a community in a space of time looking at other texts that were written in certain spaces of time. It is all interpretation. So because of that, we can actually relax and enjoy a lot more than I think than sometimes we do when we're struggling with holy texts, you know, uh, trying to get it right. There isn't really a getting right as much as there is a kind of seeing what resonates, seeing what what inspires, and what, what feels right, what feels true. Rabbi Ben Shalva, thank you for sharing your wisdom about the Torah with us today. 
So we have more to talk about. I'll invite our our listeners, if they'd like to stick around after the credits, to learn a little more about you and about your approach to Judaism. Thanks again for being here. All right. Well, we're back. Um, so first of all, you're you're at camp right now. You're actually Zooming with me from camp. So how's camp? Camp is great. Yeah, I'm Zooming. I'm zooming to you from rural Michigan, not far from from Detroit, where I'm where I'm the uh, rabbi at uh, Tamarack Camps, which is a Jewish summer camp here. And and um, I've been the rabbi here for this will be my this is my sixth summer, and it's super cool. I get to I get to spend my summers here. My kids have basically grown up at this camp here, um, and it's great. It's great. I mean, it's just, it's a it's a wonderful kind of uh, piece to the to the strange portfolio <laughs> that is my rabbinate at this point yeah you, you know i some of my earliest memories actually are of camp rabbis telling stories i'm pretty sure it's one of the reasons i became a rabbi from watching these rabbis who in in my seven-year-old mind were ancient but i'm sure they were like 35 <laughs> In their white shirts, walking around on Shabbat, telling stories that I still remember. I think it's really inspiring, and I'm positive that it's part of the reason that I do what I do. I, I, I feel the same. And actually, the first time I ever even thought of being a rabbi was when I was a counselor at a different summer camp, you know, in my uh, late teens, early 20s. And we were doing some staff training with a rabbi, and he pulled me aside afterwards and said, you know, you should think about being a rabbi. And I was just, I was like, I it never even occurred to me, but yeah, there's this, there's camp is a great place for kind of magical moments. We're all turned a little, we're, we all become a little impressionable here, all the nature and, and you're so, you know, you're, you're in a bubble. You're, you're, you're away from the outside world. It's, you can kind of dream big here. It's amazing. Yeah, that's great. So in the rest of your year, the other 10 months, you're a freelance rabbi. So we were starting before to talk about some of the things you do. I went to your website and you and you described it this way. I write stories, sing songs, marry, bury, and bless. <laughs> so you have previously served as a congregational rabbi, and now you have this, I guess, I don't know if you'd call it a much broader or more diverse type of, of rabbinate. So tell me about this rabbinate, all these various things that you do. What makes you choose this kind of Jewish engagement that you choose? Well, I think that the, um, you know, n very little of it was planned from the outset, but I will say that um, during when I began as a rabbi, uh, I, I immediately felt that I wanted to, you know, and I felt I wanted to connect to a couple different areas and found myself working more and more in those areas. And one was writing and one was music and one was, uh, I would say, meditation and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I decided, you know, I've, I feel like I do those well enough that I could probably go out on my own and um, in, in, in the right setting and uh, kind of specialize in those three areas. Um, and I think that it was also, you know, really at that point, a personality thing where I was like, you know, I, I, I just didn't want to be with one institution all the time. I kind of like, I like to be on the move, um, working with different communities. Um, I like also having, you know, a good amount of solitude also, which is why I love the writing. This kind of gives me a chance to just kind of be, you know, a little bit be in my cave and, and sort of um, commune that way. Um, 
but but I uh, so so what I ended up doing is moving moving with my wife, which she's from the DC area. We moved first in the first to the DC area and then to Baltimore. And because DC and Baltimore are so close, and there's um, there's active, very active Jewish communities in both areas, I was able to begin to build kind of a freelance rabbinate practice where um, I go to lots of synagogues uh, all over DC and Baltimore and kind of the, the surrounding areas. And on one Friday night, I might be leading a guitar musical service. And then on a Shabbat morning, I might be going to another synagogue to lead a meditation or a yoga class on Sunday or, um, you know, and then during the week, I'm frequently working on my writing. I'm, I've, I've been spending the last four years, especially uh, writing fiction and working on stories and, um, you know, publishing them slowly but surely, which is which is a long road, but it's good. So, and it, it, it does, it, it seems to kind of, um, be a, a nice way to fit these different passions into some kind of um, messy but ultimately rewarding professional life. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, you mentioned yoga and mindfulness and meditation. Are those Jewish pursuits for you? You know, I think a lot of people think of those as as Eastern type pursuits. Um, but here you are a Jewish leader. Do you see a connection between the type of meditation practice that you engage in and the Jewish life that you're leading? Yeah, but I I really felt like I had to build the connection. And, you know, I, I trained in meditation uh, and in yoga within Eastern religious contexts. So, uh, or, and with yoga, you know, yoga's in, in, in the States, in a lot of places has been bled of its religious context entirely but but you know i went to traditional hatha yoga teacher training and i trained with a zen buddhist school in meditation for many years and so initially i felt very comfortable just having meditation and yoga be what it was as i knew it which was eastern practices or practices born of the east and I was, uh, you know, a child of, of uh, you know, raised Jewish, but inspired by both East and West. And I was happy to have that. But the, but as I started, to, especially as I was beginning to, to my freelance work, um, it, it, it seemed that there were a lot of moments where that wisdom from, from the East was applicable to what I was doing within a Jewish context. And it also the more I, the more I looked into it and the more I explored, the more I could find a lot of parallels between mm-hmm. say, I mean, ultimately a lot of the meditation tradition and the yogic tradition I was involved in are mystical traditions and Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism. Uh, when you start to study it, you'll, you see that there's so many parallels with other mystical traditions. So for me, it was an act of connecting the dots and then um, helping people see that a mystical approach to the body, let's say in yoga, was echoed by um, what a lot of the Jewish mystics had to say about about the nature of this, you know, our 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 of of our body. So I kind of connected the dots there, and and uh, in some ways, sort of made it up as I went along. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you know a lot more about this than I do. But I have this sense that there's actually a pretty healthy mindfulness ethic within Judaism. And maybe it's not exactly like mindfulness as we know it today, or as it's talked about in 
in our society. But I think, for example, about the practice of saying blessings over food, that to me is really a an ethic that's meant to to stop you, slow you down, have you focus on what you're doing so that we're not just gobbling down food. Instead, we're aware of and thankful for what we're what we're doing. So I don't know if that's exactly what you're talking about, but I can see where there's parallels there with something that's an ancient Jewish practice and then something that um, that's not Jewish at all, or at least ostensibly not not Jewish at all, but that came from a whole different tradition. I, yeah, I think that there's I think that's a great example um, of how uh, when you just look at what we're actually doing in our Jewish life, there's so much mindfulness uh, that's integrated into it. Another great example that I use a lot is that um, I talk I, I tell you know, let's say if I'm teaching a Jewish group, I'll talk to them about when I was in Zen practice, and in Buddhist practice, learning about the, the practice of a mantra, which is a word or phrase that you repeat throughout your day. Um, and then I start to say, and I say to them, the teaching was that with a mantra, you would say it when you, when you lie down and when you rise up, you would say it when you pass by a gate and, and maybe you would teach it to your children and you would speak of it, you know? <laughs> and as I was describing this, what this. I realized was I'm, I'm actually saying the text of the shaman, the Vyahavta, you know, that, that, that in fact, the Shema, as far as I can tell, was and still is a mantra practice, you mm -hmm. know, that, right. that yeah. We, we say it twice a day and really now three times a day at least, right? It, it's meant to, it's meant to, I think, help you internalize a set of ideas. And it is true that the more you say something, the more you think it, and it might be the same with all prayer. You know, prayer is so ritualized in Judaism. You pray three times a day. Traditionally, you pray the same prayers three times a day. And it's more than a mantra because it's, you know, 18 blessings long. And yet you are, you're going through the motions of saying these words traditionally over and over and over again. And I think there is something to that idea that it helps you internalize it. It helps boost you in hard moments. It gives you something to hang on to when you need, when you need support. And um, I think that the one of the things that I see a lot in Jewish communities is that, um, uh, you know, I think I think less so probably now than there might have been in other times, but there's still a sense of a kind of resistance like, you know, when you start using terms of spirituality, mindfulness, mysticism, you know, people start to get a little bit like, oh, that's, you know, a little bit like that, that crazy flowy linen stuff. It's not really for me, you know. Um, and so part of what I think is, is uh, I see my job is to, is to sort of say, um, you know, it's fine if you don't want to approach Judaism in that way, but just know that, that um, it's, it's already there waiting, you know, and these, a, a mindfulness ethic or a mantra or body wisdom or, um, you, you know, any of the things that we might associate a little more with Eastern wisdom is within our tradition as well. Just mm -hmm takes on different names and different forms. So you've written two books, Spiritual Cross Training and Ambition Addiction, which do seem to relate to the kind of ideas that we're talking about here. Uh, what are you working on now? What are you writing? So yeah, I, 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 bought, I wrote those two books and one was a kind of a spiritual memoir um, of sorts. And the other one was, you know, uh, sort of my sense of, um, uh, so I thought of it as like a spirituality self-help book. But as I was writing those books, 
I found myself more and more enamored with with language and the act of writing and the act of telling stories because those books had a lot of personal stories in them. Mm-hmm. And so about four years ago, I shifted my focus and have been writing fiction since then. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, there's a great, the great writer, uh, short story writer, Flannery O'Connor says that, you know, everyone thinks they know what a story is until they try to write one. You know, it's like, uh, and it, it was true. Once I tried to start writing stories, I realized, wow, I'm, I'm kind of at the beginning of a long road, um, but I, I have so much fun with it. I love it. So I've been writing these short stories and a lot of them are in Jewish themes, though not all, but but a, a good number of them are. And, um, and I, I'm hoping, you know, long time, long road to be able to publish them in some kind of compilation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been, it's been wonderful. Do you have any short stories that are published that we might be able to access? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, um, so I just, uh, published two actually, um, one of them is called, uh, Sota and, and, you know, it's from, from the name of the, the woman in, in the Torah who's accused of adultery. Um, and that one is in a, a publication called the Ponder Review. Um, and the other one is called Brutus. And that that is in the, uh, actually, that is in a publication out of New Orleans. Hmm. Um, My hometown. The, yeah, exactly. Called, called the Podunk Review. So um, the, the, the fiction writer's game is a whole nother world, which I'm getting to know very slowly. And... Um, uh, you know, it still feel certainly like kind of an outsider looking in on it, but, but I've had a, you know, a few couple things published and, and it's been, it's been a, it's been such a labor of love. So it's been great. Nice. I'm going to check them out. Uh, can I ask you a couple questions about Judaism? These are the questions I ask everybody. Of course. So is there one ritual, one Jewish ritual that is particularly meaningful to you? One Jewish ritual that's particularly meaningful to me, I, I, you know, I, I would actually say the, um, the Shema practice, you know, I, um, I, 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 at one point actually in, in, uh, in uh, like maybe about 20 years ago, I found myself in a kind of very confusing, difficult time in my life. And all of a sudden the Shema kind of popped into my head. Um, and I was even surprised by it, but I found, I was, I started repeating it to myself and I found myself really finding kind of ground beneath my feet through the practice of just repeating the Shema to myself with my breath. And I, that still stays with me. And I still, I still return to it kind of whenever I need it. It's a beautiful practice. It's a beautiful set of ideas. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that story is in spiritual cross training. Yeah, it? it is. It is. I'm trying to find the page. Um, all right. Next question. <laughs> It's in there somewhere. <laughs> I'll find it afterwards. Um, what's your favorite holiday? Well, it, it keeps changing, but uh, I would say at this point, it's Sukkot. I love Sukkot. I, I love being outside. I love kind of how um, after all the busyness of the high holidays, we just get to sit and chill. And when you get down to it in Sukkot, there's not a lot to do. You just hang out, you know, sure. once you built your sukkah and you're kind of sitting in it with your friends, like that's it, you know, and you're just there and you're having discussion, you know, you're 
discussions or just playing music or relaxing, taking a nap. It's great. Nice. I love Sukkot also. And the building of the Sukkah, which has been something I've done with my kids over the years, has been really one of my favorite. I don't know if you can call the building of the Sukkah a ritual, but it's a practice. It's, it's definitely I mean, a it, favorite. It, it, yeah, it feels like a ritual. <laughs> you know, I always like like bang my thumb trying to hammer something in the same place every year, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, me too. You know, or which thing doesn't screw in properly. Exactly. And you have to take the whole thing apart and put it back together again. Right, right. So last question, which is about books. And we started off today talking about books, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. So what book or couple of books do we all need to read? In addition to the Torah, <laughs> you know, I'd say probably that, 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 that one feels to me like a must read. Um, yeah, you know what? I, I would say probably in terms of Jewish life, the Sabbath by Heschel is one of the ones that I think, well, I'll just say this. I feel like I was one person before I read that book and then someone else when I finished it, you know, and, and or, or maybe I should say one kind of Jew when I read that, when I first went before I read it and another kind of Jew when I finished it, that, that he sort of just changed my whole perspective on this um, project of ours as, as Jewish people in the, in, in the world and in civilization. Uh, because Sabbath is so central, the Sabbath is so central to being Jewish, um, but is in some ways such a such a mysterious and misunderstood ritual. I think that book is so essential. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's worth pointing out that it's not very long. The Sabbath, that's true too. Yeah, the yeah. Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel, who is really one of the great Jewish philosophers of the. 20th century. He's interesting in and of himself. He was a Holocaust survivor. He was brought over from Europe by Hebrew Union College, which is my rabbinic alma mater, to teach um, to teach rabbinical students sort of plucked from the jaws of Nazi Germany and taught at HUC for a little while before transferring to the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is your rabbinic alma mater, the conservative movements um, seminary, where he then taught for, for decades and really, I think, in some ways, revived the mystical tradition within American Judaism. You were talking about mysticism before, and the Sabbath is this beautiful, mystical explanation of what it means to observe Shabbat. Yeah, and I think that um, we are um, grappling in more and more deeply with, with the nature of technology in our lives. And, you know, if it, it's, it's simply stunning. I mean, I, you know, I think we're so used to seeing it now, but, but just imagine if you were suddenly, um, if, if you had arrived at this year, at this time, um, having, you know, teleported or time traveled from like the sixties or the seventies, and you saw everyone with these little machines in their hand, these little, you know, um, these little phones that they're looking at in every street corner and every place and looking and looking away and looking at it again and looking away in a kind of science fiction dystopian, uh, you know, strange, um, unbelievable um, picture. Heschel seems to not only predict where we're, where we are, but he seems to understand the spiritual path as a way to moderate our use of technology and actually um, and actually uh, redeem it in some way. 
Um, and so I think, I think, I think he speaks to one of the great dilemmas of our time. Yeah. And of all times, but maybe of our time, most of all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rabbi Benjamin Shalva, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks for spending a little time with me today. Thanks so much, Micah. This has been a treat. It's been great, Ben. Thank you. Well, that's our interview with Rabbi Ben Shalva. And to end off the podcast, here is one of his original musical compositions. You might call this a musical midrash about a young Abraham struggling to find his place in a world where his father worships idols. It's called Gods of Wood and Stone, Abraham's Song. Hope you enjoy. Hope to see you again next week. Young boy, you've been selling stones for Abba, gods of marble, mineral, and clay, trading coins for an altar's worth of wonder, for fertile soil, how much would you pay? Bend and bow and cry for hours, then watch as pregnant earth turns to gray, blame yourself. For your faith has turned to wonder Is it in the wood? Is it in the stone? I'm my father's gods The ones to call my own Beyond the river calls Something moves that sky Could it be a god Impossible to buy One day In the temple of your father Gentle nudge, God tumbles like rain Dust to dust An accidental invitation Pick up the pieces, wait for the pain But the stone with silence shunned you As quiet as the heavens with Cain Knock, knock, who's there? Where's the lightning? Where's the thunder? Is it in the wood? Is it in the stone? I'm my father's gods, wants to call my own. Beyond the river calls, something moves that sky. Could it be a god possible to buy? Statues shatter against the wall. Arms and legs and faces fall. Without a protest, each god dies Releasing prayers up to the skies In walks dad Carrying anger like the mountain Tripping over finance and faith One God's left With the murder weapon in hand Jealous one, they died for your name Stone is stone, sun lies and legends Now tell me true who caused all this pain Speak his name Let my son come out from under is it in the wood? Is it in the stone? I'm my father's gods, wants to call my own. Beyond the river calls, something moves that's God.
Could it be a God impossible to buy? Is it in the world? No, Father, no. Is it in the stone? You must have bigger dreams. Is it in the world? You must know God's of yours. Is it in the stone? Could let me crumble then to dust. I tried to fight. My crime is known. My God's alive. Your God's are stone. Let me go. Let me walk out to that wonder. Here I go. Now I walk out to that wonder. <laughs>